I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad. On today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is Black Lives Matter. This is part two of our episode on Black Lives Matter. So if you're brand new and you're just tuning in, make sure that you go back in your feed and listen to part one. We are going to jump right back into the conversation and we hope you enjoy the discussion. Well, and it's interesting because America in its patriotic religiosity, it's like, dear America, Africa is in the Bible. America is not. <laughs> it's, 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 it's laughable. Africa is in the Bible and America is not. And I, I, you know, I was thinking about Paul Revere. This is weird, but I was thinking about Paul Revere. There's an image that Paul Revere actually stole from another young man that basically is like the spark of the Revolutionary War. And there was a riot that happened, a skirmish that happened. And Christmas Attucks is like on the front lines and he is one of the first people killed. Well, when Paul Revere cops the image, he either makes... Crispus Attucks white in the image or eliminates him because there's no black person in the image. And then he sells it and it just, he uses it as this propaganda, right? Well, and when the soldiers who went to trial and they, the lawyer that defended them, I think it was John Adams that defended them, one of his statements was that these people that were rioting, basically they deserved to die because they kept company with Negroes and, you know, and, and, and kept company with Negroes and just, and harlots and this and that and just all these negative things. And he used that as a case to vilify the men who were shot. And that is the history of America, that Paul Revere would whitewash an image where a black man is in the forefront of the revolution, and then that it would be used against him that a black man was even there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know this is a, like, I don't know why I thought of that, but mm. Africa is all throughout the Bible. We have this reverence for the people of Israel. We have this thing where we're, we're always saying, you know, pray for the peace of Israel, but then we're racist to Jews and we ble- believe in some type of weird Jewish Illuminati that stood the test of time and they're behind this liberal, you know, agenda and this movement. They're behind Black Lives Matter. They're the ones that are pushing Black Lives Matter. But we believe in, you know, pray for the peace of Israel. And those people were Jews. Those people were ethnic minorities. Africa is spoken of throughout the Bible from the beginning to the end. That's where a lot of the things happened that occurred in the Bible in, the, in Africa and the Middle East. But yet we vilified a whole continent of people and made them subject to slavery, rape, just oppression. I mean, it, it's not that far-fetched that God, he, he placed us in the timeline where he placed us. He laid out history the way 
the scriptures, you know, say that they were laid out. Africa is in there for a reason. Mm-hmm. White people are the majority in America. But again, like I said, the Bible, most it, sp- it speaks of Africa. I don't know why. It, it, it's weird because it feels like white people think that Jesus was blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and that, you know, he had an Amer- American flag on his front porch and that, you know, he had a Blue Lives Matter. I mean, it's just weird what we believe in the name of patriotism, religiosity. We have to feel good about ourselves. We're the greatest country in the world. We're this, we're that, we're the the other. Mm -hmm. And we just eliminate all these other factors. I don't know, that was a ramble, but... But it's so good. I I don't know if that makes any sense, but it made sense in my head. Jesus, (laughs) Jesus flipped everything on its head. Exactly. And said, essentially, the least of these how you treat the least of these children of mine, that's what shows whether you are living as a member of my kingdom or the kingdom of this world. Yeah, it, It's not just this incidental little side fact that, oh, like the Bible includes Africa. It's also the fact that the whole shape of the biblical story exactly. is God building and establishing this kingdom where every nation, tribe, and tongue is supposed to see themselves as equal. It says there is no favoritism with God. Zero. That he loves all people equally. Then he is growing his kingdom and spreading it throughout the earth and creating this unity that crosses across other lines to where it says in Hebrews that we're supposed to see ourselves as citizens of this other kingdom. Yes. And our primary identity should no longer be that we're even white and defending and promoting white culture or black and defending and promoting black culture. We are called to love. Mm-hmm. And you, I think we see people who are white people all the time just getting defensive, but it's living in the wrong story. Yeah. Like you're living the story where like your race is not something you need to be defending. You need to be loving. That's the point. If you believe the Bible, atheists, you get a pass on this one, but if you believe the Bible then you are called on to, to love. That's your mission is to love other people and to live as a citizen of this other upside down kingdom where we celebrate prisoners going free. Yeah. And the Bible said like one of the signs of the kingdom coming and the Messiah coming was that prisoners would go free. And yet we, in America, we celebrate incarceration. Yeah. And, and the Bible says we should love the poor and care for the poor and Anytime I've been reading through the the Old Testament prophets lately, Mm -hmm. whenever God tells Israel or Judah why they're going into exile, he he oftentimes will list reasons why they're going into exile. Yep. Top reason is idolatry. Yep. The second most common reason listed for why they're going into exile is mistreatment of the poor. Yes. And the foreigner, aliens who are living among them, immigrants. So many times he says, remember the poor among you. Remember the oppressed because you too were once. I mean, he he says that from the beginning when he frees the children of Israel, he's saying that to them in the desert even. He's saying that to them and they're fresh out of, they're 40 years maybe out of slavery. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, remember that you too. And he sets up rules and guidelines for how to care for marginalized people where they, the children of Israel, would exist as the majority. Mm -hmm. Even in building the temple, there are out of courts for the Gentiles. Oh, yeah. And so, I mean, he establishes that from the beginning. I mean, if if you even go back to Hagar, that was Sarah and Abraham's disobedience Mm -hmm. that led to her 
being in the desert wondering if she and her, her child were going to live. And God made promises to her. He cared for her because he never wanted her to be treated that way. He never wanted her to be used in that way. Mm-hmm. That was Sarah and Abraham's decision. And when we look at the book of, you know, the, uh, the whole story of Esther, Esther was sex trafficked. We don't want to look at that for what it is. But she was sex trafficked. And she went into King Artaxerxes' house, basically, and God spared a whole group of ethnic minorities through her mm-hmm. by using her and by using Mordecai. I mean, we see Paul in the New Testament. He confronts Peter. He even says it. I confronted Peter to his face. He says those words. I confronted Peter to his face about his racism. Mm-hmm. And this is a fresh, brand new church or religion for all intents and purposes, where people from the Jewish people, Jesus came for the Jews and the Jewish people are established. The Messiah has come. You know, some Jewish people believe that he is the Messiah. And then they have to grapple with these Gentiles, people of other religions and races or no religion at all, coming to the Savior. And Paul, who had just persecuted Jews who believed in Christ is now, you know, everything is flipped on his head and he's saying, you can't be racist. After he was just a murderer, Mm -hmm. God does that. Mm -hmm. God levels and leverages everything. And we see this repeated throughout the scriptures, but we want to just, I don't know, we just forget that. Yeah, We forget it. I think in Revelation, there's seven churches that Jesus warns. Mm -hmm. And Different people interpret this different ways, but I see those seven churches as being kind of prototypical of churches throughout the church age. Yes. So they're get, they're being given as representative examples of churches, and in those instances, Jesus, five of the seven churches, he scolds harshly. Yes. Which, first of all, that tells you that we shouldn't assume just because we're Christians that we're always right about everything. Exactly. Because five of the seven churches were grievously off to the point of Jesus was almost saying like, watch out, I'm, I might spit you out of my mouth because you're really off here. Yeah. But then if you look at the pattern, it is he commends and upholds, and this is not should not surprise us because it's the entire gospel story, is that he commends and upholds the poor, the weak, and the persecuted. Absolutely. And he challenges and threatens to crush and excommunicate the Christians who are complacent and comfortable and living in privilege and living in wealth. And he's saying, you've forgotten your first love. You're just like, you're, you're the seed that is getting distracted by the wealth and pleasures of this world. And you are off mission. Yeah. The, the whole shape of the gospel, if you actually read the Bible for yourself and don't just listen to like teachers who, I mean, the Bible warns that in, in the last days there'll be teachers who will Absolutely. tell you what your itching ears want to hear in mm-hmm. 2 Timothy. Mm-hmm. And we see that so often today where there's teachers who will make it out like the gospel story is this, this thing that gives you wealth and comfort. Yes. When in reality, the gospel story is Jesus saying, I'm inviting you into this new kingdom where by my blood, I will purchase you and make you a citizen of this new program where all people are equal and loved where they all are welcomed in, not because of what they've done, but because what I did on the cross to purchase them. And that now you get to live as this member of this new kingdom where you're equal, where love is the thing that rules the day and Absolutely. not power and not, not, not money, not the old structures that ran society, but now love is the thing that runs my community, my people, my ecclesia, my church. Mm-hmm. And we in America 
for the most part, the church is not living that way. We're still letting power and money rule our politics, our social media, our Facebook feeds. We're, we're living on the old system. We're not celebrating the freedom of prisoners and the elevation of the poor. We're not obeying God's command to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves and the rights of all who are destitute. Straightforward command. Are you obeying that? white person? Are you speaking up for those who can't speak for themselves? Because if you're not, then you are not neutral. You are disobedient. You are called to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. And it's okay if that costs you something. Exactly. And what's interesting is that when we think about the liberal side of uh, whiteness, because oftentimes that can be just as dangerous as people in circles that tend to cling to the good old boy system of racism. Oftentimes people, you know, I call it the Miss Molly effect. I don't know if you've ever watched The Color Purple. <laughs> it's one of my favorite movies mm-hmm. and books. But it's just this idea that I'm helping, I'm an advocate, I'm a white person and I'm using my privilege and I'm using, you know, I'm leveraging my p- privilege and I'm I'm doing this. And and then there's, there becomes this sense of pride and, and, you know, it's such a slippery slope. Mm. And so a lot of people who are more liberal, who consider themselves more woke, you know, for lack of a better term, and who would consider themselves charitable and all those things it becomes dangerous. Like the only lens that like we can only accomplish this by just being very self-aware. Like, why are we doing what we're doing? Why are you fighting for the marginalized? Why are you fighting for the poor? Why are you fighting for the oppressed? You mm-hmm. should gain nothing from it. Yeah. Like it's literally like us laying our lives down. Well, and because it can easily still come from a position of feeling superior. Exactly. That I as a white person, if, if I... I can feel like I'm superior and that can cause me to oppress and marginalize or it can cause me to see myself as like a benefactor. And I might get pride or a good feeling from feeling like I'm charitably giving away something to like help the... Absolutely. But it's still coming from that heart position of feeling superior. Absolutely. Where the gospel calls us into a place where we are not superior. That's not a claim. Like it says in scripture, what do you have that you did not receive and so... If you did receive it, why do you boast and brag as though you did not? Jesus in his parables talks about us as tenants. We're not owners. Everything that we have has been given to us and we will be held accountable to steward it, to love others and make Jesus famous. Yeah. And so we're not coming from a position of superiority. We are entrusted with different amounts. Like we all have different things that we're working with. Mm -hmm. And in all cases, we're held accountable to use that to advance God's egalitarian kingdom. No, absolutely. It, it, it's it, it, it's so interesting how human beings, humankind, we just get, <laughs> we get so off track so easily. It's like, oh, look at the shiny thing. And then we're, <laughs> we just lose, mm-hmm. we lose our focus so quickly and so easily. And we go after, we chase after the wrong things. It's, it's, it's crazy. Um, Good stuff. I want to take a turn here into like some more, I feel like, I hear a lot of what you guys are saying and I'm like, yes, let's, let's go, let's go fix it. You know, like maybe I'm a white person who's like, okay, I understand everything that you guys just said, but I want to do something about it. Like, what do I do? And so the first thing is I'm going to, I'm going to say a quote from a, a popular politician. I'm not going to name him, 
But this is what he said. And then I want to hear what you guys would speak on why it's problematic. And honestly, a lot of white people say this. So if you hear somebody say this, I I would love to hear y'all's response. Like, hey, what? how can you shape the conversation? Mm -hmm. You know, obviously you need to decide whether or not it's even worth it to go into the conversation. You know, sometimes it's not. But if there are people that are, well, let me just, let me just read it. And then you guys give me the response. Quote, it's inherently racist. This is talking about Black Lives Matter. Number one, it divides us. All lives matter. White lives, black lives, all lives. So can you speak on why that's problematic and then maybe a way that you would start to turn that conversation? Yeah, I would say that one, I don't believe that black people in America can be racist. I don't, because if we're racist, what is it? It doesn't profit our race. It doesn't, white people are not going to be oppressed. We're, we're not the majority. What can we do? Now, do I believe that black people can be hateful? Yes, we can be hateful. We can be mean-spirited. You know, I'm not saying as a, a whole culture, but individual black people can be mean. They can yeah. be prejudiced. But the system of race, racism is an entire system that, that's built to oppress a people group overall. And so, and it's and it's lasted for four hundred plus years. For it didn't just like a racism has not been been eradicated. And so this whole idea of reverse racism. So I'm mean to a white person. They don't lose their job. They don't you know have a higher interest rate in, when buying a home. Yeah. They don't. Their kid doesn't get kicked out of school. I mean. There's no end game for you say that you know black people can be racist or black lives matter is race black lives matter is racist how we're talking about a marginalized and oppressed people group who history has shown there's been ways that we have not benefited ways that we've been disadvantaged ways that you know there there've been disparities we need to leverage that and you can't leverage that by saying, oh, this is reverse racism when black people are being killed in their own homes and black people with the right to carry, according to American government laws, are shot down for, for having a gun in the car and saying, hey, officer, I have a gun and I'll show you. Following the rules and shot Philando Castile killed in, in front of a baby. Like, uh, Mm. one of those bullets could have hit the baby, could have hit the woman in the car with them. Black lives have to matter. Mm -hmm. Black lives have to matter. Black Mm. lives have to matter. I don't even understand how people can say it's reverse racism other than just to be dismissive and not really grapple with the real issues. Mm -hmm. Because if there are disparities, if there's marginalization, if there's oppression, that says that black lives don't matter and the reason why we're saying that they do matter, just like we could say in some countries where Christians are being persecuted, Christian lives matter. Mm-hmm. Nobody would be offended by that. In, in countries, in, 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 in unreached places where Christians are being you know, slaughtered, churches are being bombed, if we wore shirts that said Christians' lives matter, nobody would, would flinch. America would get behind that. But America doesn't want to deal with its own institutions of oppression and, and, and racism right here because we need to be the greatest. And even at our worst, we're better than everyone else, right? Because we give opportunity, but we don't. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that the all lives matter and it's a little different, but the blue lives matter slogans both miss completely what's being said in Black Lives Matter. And they change the subject. So Black Lives Matter is a cry of pain of saying, I feel like you're saying my life doesn't matter. And it does. And it's trying to boil the conversation down to such a basic point that it should be agreeable. That you should at least come to the starting point with me of seeing that my life matters. And so then saying all lives matter is a change of the subject. And it's a way to kind of dismiss that pain and instead kind of, like I said earlier, hear it as an accusation and be like, well, I'm going to kind of ignore the point of what you're saying and kind of give this pithy response of like, well, blue lives matter, all lives matter, as a way to kind of get past that. Well, and it's so funny, you know, with my husband working in law enforcement, when we talk about blue lives matter, I I feel like blue lives matter, that's just an affront and a slap in the face to law enforcement. Because you know what? Police officers often don't get paid well. They often have to work long shifts. They They often don't get the training that they need to do their jobs. Or counseling. Or, like, and I was just about to yeah. say that. A lot of times, law enforcement, because they're seeing all this trauma up front, yeah. they're not getting counseling support. They may get six visits, you know, when it comes to increasing taxes so that police officers can get better pay and better benefits and support for their families. Oftentimes, that shot down. People say blue lives matter, just because they don't want black lives to matter. Not because they care about blue lives. Yeah. Because the same people who would say blue lives matter, if they're being pulled over to get a ticket, or if they, it's like, I'll have your job, you work for me. The attitude shifts. People don't care about police officers. They don't. Yeah. I mean, and because when we look at the suicide rate of police officers, mm-hmm. Is just tremendous. Mm. Black police officers often get all kinds of craziness because they're black and police officers. They get stuff from behind the blue line as well as from the general public who don't feel that they need to listen or abide because the police officer is black. So this whole concept of Blue Lives Matter is just a farce. Mm -hmm. It's a lie because I see it up close and personal. Because not only does my husband work in law enforcement, I know so many law enforcement officials, of course. And I see what they have to deal with behind closed doors. Mm. And America is not loving or valuing blue lives. They're only saying that as a deflection from black lives needing to matter. Well, and even bigger picture is that if over time we built our system into one that was more just, more de-escalated and more fair, that would be safer for blue lives. Exactly. Like, if (laughs) black people could trust that a police officer will treat them fairly and wouldn't just suddenly shoot them, then the whole situation would be de-escalated to where everyone would be more safe. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and it's interesting, just coming back to the affirmation, accusation, we can see Black Lives Matter and assume it's an accusation but we see blue lives matter and that goes away now and we see that we see that as an affirmation you know it's almost like totally hypocritical to think black lives matter accusation blue lives matter affirmation mm-hmm. because there are black blue lives or like black police officers and it it's just interesting how we can compartmentalize these things and it it is it's like a little 
it sounds like it's just like offensive to see Blue Lives Matter, uh, the hashtag, or just to see the flag with a blue stripe on it. And it's just another way to say that white lives matter more. It's not about blue lives. It's it's literally another way to elevate whiteness and the con- and the social construct of whiteness yeah. that this country has relied on, that this country has been built on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and blue lives do matter, and all lives do matter. So the Absolutely. problem with those statements is that they're not on the face of them untrue. The problem is that they're a way to dismiss what's actually being talked about, which is that black lives historically have not mattered to the same degree, and still today are not protected in the way that other lives are protected. And if we even look at it outside of, you know, we talk about uh, social justice and crime and police brutality, but let's just look at it from everyday life, workplace disparities, how black women are perceived in the workspace, how they are treated in the workspace, how black people are typically underpaid. You know, they're paid a lot less than their counterparts. How black women are underpaid, but we're the most educated people group in the country. We're the most entrepreneurial. We, We have the most small businesses. But yet we're treat we're we're paid significantly less. There's a whole cycle of trauma that black women have to endure in the workplace. I've seen that as a as a, a manager myself, and I've seen that where white people will come in and they will see that I'm the boss, and they will ask my staff things like, "How is this Negro woman, colored woman?" nigger woman. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, this is what my, because for the longest time, I'm the only black person in the office. So all my staff was white for a long time. They're coming to me telling me what people are asking them. I'm being called ghetto by people who want to just dehumanize me because, and make ghetto a bad word, but I'm being professional, if not more, you know, the most educated person in the, in, the, in the space besides my bosses. And I have an awesome pedigree, awesome resume, all the things, but I have to prove myself to someone who sees me less than just because I'm black. I've been confronted about Obama being president. Someone walks, sees me walk down the hall. Can I speak to her? Who is she? Is she a boss? I need to talk to you. Do you think that Michelle Obama buying a dress? I'm like, what does that have to do with why you are here mm. in this space for what you, you know, for, for as a consumer? What does that have to do? I've had to deal with that. And so there's so many disparities in the workplace. Just like I said, this whole cycle of a black woman starts, starts a job and it's like, oh, we, we're so excited to have you. You know, we believe in diversity. You're welcome here. But she can't wear her hair natural like it grows out of her head. Mm-hmm. I tell you that. She needs to look European. She needs to have European, the European standard of, of beauty. Like one, once someone asked me, my husband worked at night. He came to my office and dropped something off. Oh, your husband ain't got no job? Like, mm. I'm like, why would you assume that my husband doesn't have a, have a job? There's so many ways that white people don't even think that they engage in a racial way, but that they do. It's because it's so ingrained and it's so, it's just like second nature. And so where white people need to start doing the work is self-reflection, self-awareness. How do I, why do I feel this way? Why do I feel angry when I see this black woman? Why do I, why do I get mad when I see her driving a nice car? 
How do because you get asked questions like, how can you afford that? Oh, you live in this neighborhood? Oh, your kids, they're so smart and well behaved mm-hmm. while their kids are running around tearing up everything. It's like my kids are kids. My kids don't have to perform for you. If they're not being well behaved, they're being kids. Because kids get grace to be kids unless they're black kids. My 12-year-old son, he's big, he's strapping, he's a football player. He, I, I fear for his life just because, and he's a teddy bear. You know, he's just a sweet, kind, gentle soul. But if he's walking down the street and he, you know, if somebody assumes something bad about him, that's it. You know, my husband who rides his bike has been followed around our neighborhood by an old, old white man who thought that he was up to no good. Like, we're being George Zimmerman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just everyday living. Watch what you ask people. Watch how you engage people. Why are you asking certain, certain things? Why are you asking things knowing that there is an offense but expecting people not to get offended? Mm. Let's yeah. deal with those. Let's start there. You can start with the heavy stuff, you know, that we're talking about, that we talked about early, but you can also start right there in your house, right there in your own mind, in the prison that's in your own mind as to why you think. Because if your grandmother was racist and your great-grandfather owned slaves and, you know, your mama says off, offhanded stuff, you got to think about how that's deal, how 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 that's impacted you because all of us, black people included, like I have to do undo the work of white supremacy. There's things in myself as a black person that I have to do to to work through why I believe some of the things that I believe mm-hmm. that's centered around comforting and accommodating whiteness right. and making myself invisible and making sure that I don't offend like. We all have to do that work. Yeah. And I mean, that's a common thing for victims of anything. Exactly. Victims will tend to, I mean, like childhood victims. Yeah, exactly. They'll, they'll be like, oh, what did I do to make him mad at me, to make him yes. beat me up? And then they'll start to own that as part of their identity. So it's, it affects the, the black identity also. And then that makes it especially harmful and hurtful, the tendency that white people will do to find one black voice that agrees Absolutely. with you. And has your perspective, and then to throw that out because racism is a system that all of us are in, and it affects all of us. In some, there are black people who have got a fully white perspective that will like accommodate whiteness and be drinking the same water, absolutely, and just finding that one voice and using that to discredit the entire community, the rest of the community that's crying in pain. We don't feel like our lives matter, but but right. then white people are like, oh, there's this one guy who says that he disagrees and and discredit the community's pain. But white uh, people want to be accepted as a mainstream. America has its mainstream that everyone is ex- expected to conform to. Black people have a mainstream. There's there's a black main mainstream thought. We're not monolithic, but there is a mainstream thought and ideology about you know, racism, about disparities, about oppression, but you go out of your way to find the one black person that agrees with you, or you go out of your way to find, you know, to talk about issues about like, well, what about abortion and black women having so many abortions? We can talk about black women having abortions, but let's also talk about 
abortion clinics being put in impoverished neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about one in three black women being raped and sexually abused before they turn 18, often multiple times. Let's talk about 75,000 black girls and women missing in America, and there's no outcry. But you, you're crying for the black baby that was aborted, not because you care about the black baby, but you don't want to validate a black person, a black adult. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, 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 care, uh, you, know, you care about the sanctity of life for the unborn because they can't defend themselves. Because as soon as we get old enough to be able to speak up for ourselves, then it's like, well, look at this over here. You can't, you can't, you can't matter because y'all have abortion. You have crime. You have this. You have that. Black on black crime, which is a whole like lie, because people kill and commit crimes in the proximity of where they where they are. There's white on white on white crime. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the crack epidemic versus the opioid, which the crack epidemic was a war on drugs. The opioid epidemic is a Public mental health, health crisis, mm-hmm. you know? And so, yeah, it's, it's just so crazy how everything gets pointed back at the black community. And do I think that the black community as a, as a culture, as a collective is perfect? No, no culture is. People, we're human, we're fallen. We have issues as a collective culture, we have issues just as just as we're addressing white America as a collective p- culture, but people act like black people don't care about the issues that exist in our community. Yeah. Yeah. We care about abortion. We care about crime. We care about the things that exist in our community, and oftentimes we are doing the work with with fewer resources to combat those issues. Black people are working hard in their communities. I come from a historic. African-American community in Memphis, the first one in the country. And there is much work that is being done. But the work that we're fighting, the work that we're doing is, it, it, it centers around fighting 400 years of oppression. My great, great grandmother, I always say this, my great, great grandmother, her father was a slave. She died when I was 20. Mm-hmm. She died when I was 20 years old. So to have this idea that slavery is just this old, you know, only having to pet my great, great grandmother, her father was a slave. She died when I was 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And so it's... And not it's, to mention all this other stuff. All the other things. Then. You know, my yeah. parents growing up in Memphis, they were there. They, you know, Martin Luther King got shot. My grandparents who were sanitation workers, like... I I was I was sent to other schools like I was a part of the whole desegregation. I went to school during that period just a few years after, you know, desegregation happened and just being taken out of my natural community to be driven to schools 30 minutes away and you know that's a whole other story. I don't know like we talk about desegregation and some of the damage yeah. that has happened with that but yeah i mean it's it's so it's just so interesting how we are attacked with issues that were founded that are a, a root of a they're found like they're principles of oppression we're 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 being attacked black people being attacked by things that that were you know founded or that were start that were started by just the oppressive system. It's like yeah, let's talk about it. But if we're going to talk about abortion, let's go back to the racial roots of it, mm-hmm. the racialized roots of it. If we're going to talk about why black people are poor, let's go back to the oppressive roots of it. If we're going to talk about you know black 
criminality. Let's go back to the mass incarceration and, and you know, just the propaganda and the campaigning to make Black people be more be criminal. Yeah. It, but nobody wants to talk about that. We just throw these things out as a deflection. Since, since abortion came up, I just want to say one quick thing about it. We'll probably talk about it more I'm in sure. the future. But just as a quick thing, I think for a lot of... So I'm a white evangelical and I'm pro-life. A lot of times when I see racial conversations come up on Facebook or social media, abortion is like the go-to cop-out for white evangelicals where they will basically feel like, here's my trump card. Mm. If I get uncomfortable with the conversation, Literally. I can prove that I'm in the right by throwing this card down. Mm-hmm. But white person, if you're pro-life, let me challenge you. You are not pro-life enough. The problem is you just are pro-life enough to want to criminalize abortion. <laughs> you're not actually pro-life enough to want to reduce the things in society that actually drive abortion. Give me, let, me, let me give you some instances. White people are on the front of trying to prevent businesses from giving out contraceptives. But if there's less contraceptives, there will be more abortions. White people are... In general, uh, like the conservative movement is doing less than the liberal movement to address poverty, but poverty is a driver of abortion. Or, or there's like a lot of other things where we don't have the, the pro life movement needs to actually get past just trying to criminalize it and actually try to look at the deeper questions of like what is driving abortion, what's causing it. And look at the issue in a broader way. So my challenge for you for this episode, we're not going to get into it more, but just don't throw that trump card down and just think that you can walk away from this conversation justified because you value unborn lives or unborn black lives. Jesus calls us to value our neighbors and defines our neighbors as everyone. So it's, that's not enough. That's not enough for you to be walking in obedience. You have to deal with some of these deeper issues and, and have like a more comprehensive view of personhood. Of Absolutely. Image bearing. Well, and even just, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, did you're you want, good. Did you finish I was finishing it. Well, I was going to say, like when we talk about, you know, because they talk about how many black kids are left orphaned. Again, that is the crack epidemic being seen. And then black communities were infiltrated with drugs on purpose. I mean, we got... COINTELPRO and other programs where black communities were infiltrated with drugs, alcohol. And so, yeah, you see alcoholism and drug abuse and mental health issues in communities that don't have the resources to address those things and to get the help. But black black children have been orphaned. You know, my parents were both raised by their grandparents. My dad was raised by his great grandmother, the one I spoke of, who, whose father was a slave. And they, in poverty, as poor sharecroppers, farmers, picking cotton, would, would take in grandbabies, nieces, nephews. Like, adoption is not something, like, Black people have been adopting. We just didn't call it adopting. We were just taking in folks' kids. Black people have been doing that, and even during, throughout slavery, as people were, you know, a mom would be separated from a child. Like, they would build community around these children, and as much as they could, as best as they could, try to, to rally around and protect these kids and care for children. So adoption is not new to the Black community, but this whole idea, just because now white people are adopting Black children, 
it's become an issue because Black people have been criminalized, whereas white people are given more support when they fall on hard times, when they fall into crime. They're given support with the hopes that they can be reunited with their children. Black people are stripped of their children. And as we deal with infertility issues in America, Black women have now gone from being bred as slaves a sla- you know, slave bre- being bred for slavery to now being incubators. And of course, now black women have to be more criminalized and be deemed as unfit as mothers so that children can be taken away so that we can fit this, so that we can, ha- so that we can you know, because black kids are easily adopted by anybody. Where, whereas white kids, there are certain groups of people that can't, you know, mm. people groups that can't adopt white kids. They're going to have a more strenuous process. Black black kids are getting stolen from Africa and adopted when they come from perfectly, you know, good homes. And so, again, we can't address, don't don't talk to me about black abortion until we're talking about all those other issues that lead lead Mm -hmm. up to that. Yeah. Uh, I want to land a plane here for a practical way. We're going to always have a call to action at the end of these episodes. Uh, Sometimes these things that we hear, these are really big complex, huge issues that doesn't feel like someone like, you know, myself can just go fix. And a lot of times people are unsure of what to do. And an easy way of doing something is supporting movements, organizations that are doing the work. People have been doing this for a really long time. There are organizations that are doing real work and on future episodes and in in our social media, we'll resource people with all those, all those things. But for this episode, we wanted to point people to the Black Lives Matter website and buy a t-shirt and that money will go to that movement. And, and they're doing the work to try to love on and support black and brown people through trying to change legislation yeah. to trying to stop police uh, brutalities. I, I hope what you come away with this is like the rhetoric of Black Lives Matter endorsing police violence is wrong. That was made up. That's not true. There's multiple accounts of the people of the movement denouncing a lot of police brutality, especially even the one in Dallas that kind of was a big deal. So we're going to put the link uh, on our website to their shop. They have some really, really cool looking designs. And so we challenge you to, um, we're going to put this on social media too, but go buy a shirt, use our hashtag to kind of share your experience. I mean, just wearing that shirt alone, as you can imagine, will create some conversations in your life. And so, but we, we want you to have them. Do you guys have any last thoughts before kind of sign us off here? Just on that front of wearing the shirt, I would just encourage white people, if you're going to wear a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, do it in love. Yeah. Like, Do it because you are loving and affirming what's true. Both love for God because you're saying that these image bearers made in his image have value and you're testifying to that truth. And also do it in love to the black community to say like, I see your pain and I'm joining you, joining you in saying yes. Don't just do it to like bug white people because that's not the right yeah. heart motivation. But, but I think to approach it that way so that then when you get looks and questions from white people who are like, what, what are you wearing that for? Then come from that perspective of like, I'm wearing this because I have seen the pain that of black people around me who feel like their lives aren't treated with the same value and I just want to testify that they do. It's it doesn't have to be like a political statement. Yeah. I I think for a lot of people they'll they'll want to see it through a political lens when actually it's like it's love not. that should be motivating us to say yes black lives yeah. have value. Have equal value. They matter. Well, and I was going to say for white people, you don't have to know 
every single thing. You don't have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And let your, let your zeal be authentic because this is a messy conversation and it's a messy process, unpacking and undoing, you know, white supremacy in our lives. And so with my white friends who are doing that work, it's messy. Their apologies have to be given. They say something that I'm and I that I have to possibly educate them on or point them in a different direction. And if you are easily deflated, if you're easily discouraged, and if you make this about, I'm going to do this, you know, and don't look at it as a lifetime of work. It's going to be a lifetime of work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a, a work in pro- progress every single day. So don't let your zeal be deflated when you come to bumps in the road. You don't have to know everything. You're not superior, you know. You're just a human being just like the rest of us, like black people, and you don't have to save us. <laughs> we want white people to leverage their privilege. We want you to join in the fight, but we're, you know, we're your equal we're not beneath you. Don't have a white savior complex. And before you get the shirt, do some reading. And don't wear your black friends out with 50 million questions before you start looking and trying to do the work yourself. Listen to this podcast. Listen to this podcast. Yeah. And there are other podcasts. There's uh-huh. books. There's We're going to be you know, sharing resources. Do the work. Don't just wear the shirt. Do the work. But st- yeah, buy the shirt and support black causes but actually do the work. Yeah, that's good. Well, thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at our show notes, or you can go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. The show notes will be there as well. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote on future topics, you can check us out on Patreon. We're on Patreon at patreon.com slash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. Uh, Remember that all the money you give in the next 10 episodes will all go to the Denton African American Scholarship Foundation. We're not going to keep that money and get cooler microphones and swag and stuff. Uh, That'll actually be going directly to a Black-centered organization, and we're going to hear from the founder in in future episodes, so I'm excited about that. On our next episode, we're going to be discussing the Lamont Stowers Jones case and Goatman's Bridge from right here in Denton, Texas. And we're going to leave you with this quote from Jamel Bowie. Our courts and juries aren't impartial arbiters. They exist inside society, not outside of it. And they can only provide as much justice as society is willing to give.